This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 601. And the quote of the day is, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 601, and it's a doozy. I got the one and only Mr. Pick Withers, the original founding drummer of Dire Straits, played on a ton of their hits, including Sultans of Swing, and also has performed with Bob Dylan. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and has just some amazing stories and amazing perspectives about playing about playing in a band approaches uh and just just the guy you know he's done it all and i'm extremely honored that his wife linda reached out and asked uh if i would be interested in talking to him and i absolutely said yes because i love dire straits and so here we are one quick thing i want to let you know about this conversation is we were already talking off air and we were getting into some some cool things and i hadn't hit record yet because we hadn't officially started but i said let me just hit the record button so it sort of starts abruptly because like i said pick and i were already talking and it was some good stuff that i didn't want to miss so i just hit the record button and that's where we're going to start just where from where i hit record so with that being said, I hope you enjoy this amazing conversation with the one and only Mr. Pick Withers. Because I played for a while with a band called Brinsley Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Um, their drummer had an unfortunate accident. It was incapacitated for a while. And so they, I was drafted in and, and they had a... It was good for me because, you know... you. you when you work with new people, you, you get new influences and hopefully they be, you absorb them into your kind of playing and stuff and your knowledge. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's really, really good like that. I mean, that's the one drawback I find with playing with the same band all the time. It becomes, in a way, a kind of, you're not careful, it becomes like a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me in Dire, dire Straits, you know, with it. It started off great, and then we started playing in bigger rooms. And when we started playing in 3,000, 4,000 seaters and things, it was time to, as the Beatles were um, implored to do, make show. So right. you'd find you'd do something spontaneously, like twiddle a stick or something. Uh, you're having a good time. And the next day you get to the sound check, and the lighting guy would descend upon you and say, oh, I've got, um, you know that, when you twiddled your stick last night? I said, well... Yes, I remember twiddling it, but I don't know where. Oh, you've got to remember where, because I've put a spot in now, and I want to highlight that. You've got to do it at the same really? time. So I can, and you think, oh, well, okay, okay. And it's fine for a while, but then you find that the whole thing becomes choreographed. Right, right. You know, and you start to, and it's okay. It's, it's the part of you're trying to make a good presentation, and, and mm-hmm. I don't mind that aspect of it, but... In the end, you start to have these out-of-body experiences where you are, you play everything so much that it it it, it kind of looks after itself, right? In a way, and then right. you have you find, oh, I don't know who played that last chorus because it wasn't me, right? 
Does it's it just feel on, a, on an automatic pilot? You know, you played it hundred times, and uh, and that, you know, so and it started to get very loud as well. Yeah, we went in the bigger rooms, and and I, I I started to have issues with my balance, which I didn't relate to being hearing. You know, uh, wow, that's and, interesting. Yeah, because all your balance all comes from your from your inner ear. Inner ear. Yeah. And the monitors were just really playing havoc with me, you know. But I didn't And that was like pre pre in ear monitors and all that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was all there were little wedges. Yeah. But the thing was if we played we played for about an hour and a half, two hours, maybe two hours, I don't know what it was really. Hour and fifty minutes. A lot of the time I did I, I segued stuff. And so I, I didn't have any hands free to say turn something down. And and I think the default position for the monitor guy was just turn everything up. Right. <laughs> so, and you don't, you, you, I don't know, you know, you just get sucked into it somehow. And then when I came off stage, I felt like I was being a, a sailor. I was just like lost my balance for two or three minutes. Now I, I should have really been a much, much more clued up and realized that was a warning. Wow. About, about damage to your ears. But I mean, I've sustained that now. So, so there were lots of elements that really fed into becoming like I don't know, just just disenchanted with the whole whole thing, you mm -hmm. know. And I was gonna well, there's a couple of things. One, I didn't realize with sound with your ears too that anytime you hear ringing in your ears, that's permanent damage that you can never undo. Yeah. Whether it be, I mean, yeah. it might be very small damage, but anytime your ears ring, it's damage to your ears, which I never knew that. And my ears have rung plenty of times after playing gigs and driving home and and sometimes it was piercing how loud it was how loud my my ears were were ringing yeah well i think as a drummer you have to be careful of the snare drum mm -hmm. it's very toppy and the cymbals which are toppy and and uh yeah i mean i've 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 met quite a few people who have really damn it i worked mm -hmm. with a with a guy called dave edmonds mm -hmm. who had um had a hit. He was. He had a hit in. Uh, I don't know about America, but in the UK had a hit with a Smiley Lewis song uh, or a I Hear You Knocking. Mm -hmm. um, an old R and B song, and uh, he was a really good guitar player. And uh, he he just played everything really, really loud. I mean, it's the first time I start to use uh, earpieces to to block out the sound, and the only way I could really get a sense of what the symbols were doing was through the vibrations through the stick. Cause I couldn't hear them. It was like, there was no definition cause his, his sound was so big. And I did end up being way before Dire Straits. I did, I lived in Italy for three years, played in an English band who had a recording contract over there. And we had some hits in there. Mm. Where'd you live in Italy? Rome. Oh, awesome. we, played, we played, we played all over, you know, I mean, I really bought into it because I was 18 and just like a big sponge absorbing everything. Right. Food, you know, the language. Mm -hmm. I just really, it's just really a great opportunity for me to reinvent myself. Mm, I love Rome. Rome is one of my, if not my favorite city in the world. I love it there. Yeah. It's just, just, just drenched in history. Mm -hmm. um, but um, anyway, where was I with the, Oh, you were saying about the you were there when you were eighteen playing with uh with the band that you had a contract with or that had a record deal. We had a record contract, yeah. But I was gonna, I was going to say something. I lost the thread there. Um, it was something relevant about I can't remember. It's gone. 
<laughs> that, just got, like that. Yeah. We're moving on. Well, you know, well, the- it's happened to me a lot now in, in this stage of my life. <laughs> I have to accept it, you know. It happens to me we too. It, so. In England, we call it senior moments. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I was wondering before we chatted. I I remember reading about you uh, about you leaving Dire Straits, and and I was always wondering. Okay, was it because I I. I know a lot of people that I talked to said that they loved playing in smaller clubs. Once they got to bigger clubs, it just wasn't as enjoyable. They felt really disconnected. They felt like, like you said, it's really choreographed. Everything is, you know, even now everything is to sequencers and all that kind of stuff. And I was always wondering, you know, was it because of that, because it didn't feel as musical to you as it did before, or was it the other side of it? Like, the goodness of you, you were, you wanted to preserve the goodness of w- the memories of that you had with the band before it got sort of out of control. And we hear the stories of like, you know, bands that, that get too big and then, and then everyone hates each other and, and they're, they, they end up breaking up. And were you trying to just preserve that goodness well, of Dire mean, Straits? For me, there were, there were lots of strands. There was, I was kind of just becoming disenchanted with the whole kind of playing style because um, we were just getting louder. Right. louder and louder and uh stuff like sultans and romeo and julia i don't think it lends itself i mean yeah you want it to be dynamic but when you start kind of you know doing this across the top of the amp and stuff i i, I think it loses its kind of charm and uh there was always the battle cries but as the in england as the venues got bigger give it some welly which means just play everything really loud right you know, and yeah. uh, I just, you know, I, I, I always found that even with bands that use that as a as, as a benchmark for playing, after five minutes, it doesn't have any dy- it no it no longer has a dynamic quality about it. It's just kind of in the audience, it kind of it, there's an impact of this first start, but then you adjust, and so um, it's very difficult to get the dynamics right. Then mm-hmm. you know, if you play really, really loud. And where does it go from? Where do you go from there? If everything's smushed against the ceiling, where? Well, as a drummer, you feel like you've done ten rounds with you know Mike Tyson after about <laughs> four songs. You know, it's just. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I just, I don't want to play. I, I, I want to play the full dynamic range of the instrument. You know, and, mm-hmm. and if, if you're doing a little clock on the, not a rim shot, but a, like the bossa nova beat. You know, right, like a cross stick. It's uh, cross stick, yeah. I mean, there's no point in playing that if, if it's swamped out and swamped yeah. out. But um, you know, there were there was some good time. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it when Alan Clark joined the band because mm-hmm. there was a keyboard to to kind of have a convers have a dialogue with, which was right. really great because uh, Mark and I were very keen to add keyboards at one stage, and John and his younger brother and Mark's brother David. They were they were against it because they they felt we had a winning formula which might be kind of compromised and, and I, I just wasn't interested in in that at all I was just more interested in the in how we could make the music better right right and, uh, I think it helped Mark as well because he started to write a little bit on the keys keyboard as well so it just gives you another kind of dimension mm-hmm. you know but eventually you know there's this whole personal stuff as well which i don't really want to go into that so you got all these kind of strands going on playing loud playing everything choreographed um personal kind of things and it's all all feeds in and in the end 
you just feel that, oh, who played that last chorus? Because it wasn't me. Like, you have this out-of-body experience where you're looking down. And, and I've played in some bands after that where you thought, you know, it's so loud that the only, re the only, the only thing they'd notice about the drums was if I stopped playing. Because, you know, you just couldn't, you didn't feel like you were in the mix at all. You know, it just, just, right. I mean, drums is essentially acoustic instrument. Mm -hmm. and we, mm -hmm. we tried damn hard to get a, a really good sound with the mics. But um, once you start really, you know, you're playing a sound check and you just, drums alone, they sound like thunder in, yeah. in a big room. And you think, yeah. I'm not playing like that. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 so if you've got thunder for, but, you know, for, pianissimo you know wh wh where are you going to go you know with it it's just yeah i mean i remember specifically when i was beginning to really feel it was a problem we, we all went to see the 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 last waltz you know the mm -hmm. the big yeah band hurrah film yep. by scorsese yep. yeah and i would say they were all we were all raving about it and i was saying to the three of them look at levon helm what do you mean look at him he said well look at him you're going on about the sound Look how he's playing the drums. He's not like a monkey jumping up and down like a chimpanzee. You know, he's, he's not right. doing that. And yet you, you, you're all going crazy about how good the sound is. That's the way we can play. But, uh, you know, I think there's also another aspect of it is that um, you walk out to about 20,000 people and, and you just go, shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you adrenaline. Just, and you just, I don't know. It's, sometimes there, there are extenuating circumstances as to why you find yourself in this maelstrom of, of sound. It kind of, you know, kind of covers your vulnerability, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really takes a lot of kind of experience and uh, a lot of kind of, I don't know, trust in each other, I think, is right. what I'm looking for, to, to actually be able to, to play quietly or relatively speaking and uh i don't think a lot of bands do that maybe it's better now i don't know but um i do remember that about the band and the last waltz that it was really it was just so evident to me that you know mm -hmm. you could have a big sound because we had keyboards now and two guitars and bass right. and drums and uh, there was no reason why we couldn't you know do it and i think there's some nights maybe it happened but Generally speaking, I felt it was just, it was like a big, like one of these big oil tankers, you know, once it's, once it's up and running, you know, it takes a lot of, takes a lot to stop it. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. always another element where it just has a life of its own. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, I mean, all bands will experience this where you, you play for two hours on a big stage and a big stage where you, the actual component parts are quite far apart. You know, the bass is, 10 yards away and whatever. So you would come off stage and if there was five people in the band, there'd be probably be three different uh, appraisals of what it was like. You yeah. Know? Somebody, yeah. Oh, I, was, I had a great sound. Oh, I had a horrible sound. And then mm -hmm. somebody else, you know, was kind of moved around and he had a great sound on the a stage right, not such a good sound stage left, so I stayed stage right. Well, the drums are fixed, so... Right. We're in that in that dilemma anyway, but um, that's all part and parcel of it. You know, you have to smile and you know mm -hmm. get on but, with it. And, and, and big you, stages are hard, especially when you when I remember jumping from from like mid sized stages to big stages. 
and you get up there and like you said there's 10 yards between each yeah. person and you're looking around and you're sort of like are we even in a band are we even playing together it's sort of like yeah there are I, I had a i had a hard time like playing i was i was trying to play really loud because i felt like i needed to because i felt like they couldn't hear me for some reason or whatever yeah. it was yeah that sounds familiar <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird it's a weird uh, but, um, it's yeah. a weird adjustment i just remembered that that thing about italy we um so i was in this english band and we lived there and we we it was in the late 60s so they still had this thing which we we call a, a package tour where you go on a small tour and there's probably about at least eight acts that constitute this show and there'll be a headlining act and this, in this instance it was The Who. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the rest of us tended to play, take up the first half of the show, which is probably an hour, hour and a half, where you did three, four songs each. Then there was an interval and The Who came on. Well, they did, we did, they did nine shows in about four days with matinees and whatever and uh, he had this enormous double bass drum kit by then and lots of toms maybe five toms one of the floor tom toms was just used as a table for, for, <laughs> you know, for a towel and a yeah. can of coke and stuff but he had this he had this dustbin a, a trash can lid painted white mounted on a cymbal stand and and so far as the cymbals were concerned that's the only thing i heard him play on the nine shows because it it just had this zinc galvanized metal donk 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 and it would cut through the entwistle's bass and uh, townsend's screaming guitar you know i and i'd seen them before um when they first started but uh, when i can't explain their first first single was out maybe substitute was out as well Mm -hmm. in the marquee which is a famous venue in central london where everybody's played there and they were just sensational you know the, the just just the pure visceral quality in a small club right. as opposed to seeing them seeing them do nine shows in palazzo della sports and things they, 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 it was very tangible the difference you know yeah one was really exciting one was a spec the other one was a spectacle it was just like loud and in your, just a wall of sound sort of thing yeah yeah and it was just uh just like a spectacle, you know, with um, right. making show, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a kind of horrible atmosphere when, as as my generation came, which was their last song in that 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 era, um, Townsend was really kind of angry, you know, and he I don't know if he psyched himself up to smash the guitar, but basically, all the bands that had played in the first first set there a couple of english bands mainly italian bands all intrigued about the who and all backstage watching on the side of the stage and as my generation came by the time it got to the bass solo everybody just melted away because there was this kind of um i don't know it's palpable tension on the stage and if you were around and he, he, he could he could easily throw the guitar at you <laughs> I mean, with a real aggression, you know, I'm not talking about passive aggression. I'm talking about real um, angst, you know. Jeez. Uh, so, but that was just been, it was the only thing I heard him play, basically, over nine nine shows. And, and um, 
I'm sure that helped to walk to. Well, he was a crazy drummer anyway, but you know. <laughs> yeah. there was something about their early live shows that was just, it had that visceral quality, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is something to the small venue, to big venue things, but it can be done, you know, it, it can easily be done. I think it comes down to trust. You have to trust each other. And, and if somebody wants to play, you know, not quietly, but more controlled, you have to have the kind of, I don't know, experience and to be able to listen to one another. And sometimes bands don't do that. They arrange everything. Everything's prearranged. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to play this, so you'll play that. And when we get to there, we'll both stop, and then I'll do this cue. And, and, and also, I have this hunch about um, guitar, the, 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 the guys on – down on the front of the stage, you know, the guitar players. In their monitors, they only seem to have the bass drum, kick drum, as we call it, and the snare. And, of course, the most important thing is the cymbals because that yeah. gives you the pulse, gives you the pulse. But I think they're hooked on, and they, want, they need to hear that for some reason. And there's too much space in between. Boom, ta, boom, boom, ta. You know, you, want, you need to hear something. Where are we going? Or even, you know, it's, you know, it's, yeah. there's no little, you know, if, if you're playing, you know, there's a kind of the one and the three and the two and the four, they, they, they don't help you kind of establish that kind of stuff at all, mm-hmm. you know, on, on a big stage, you know. Yeah, they're there for reference, but I, I, I'm sure that's got something to do with people's, uh, guitar players, uh, you know, a, appreciation of, of what what drums should perform, what function they should should provide for them. Yeah, you know, I'm not guitarists, of course, but um, those damn guitar players. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a fantastic instrument. I know, so portable, so kind of flexible. It's it, it's wonderful. It's 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 just got everything about it. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost that, erotic. It's it's everything, really. You know, it's anything, and it's everything and anything, and and nothing in the wrong hands. Just yeah. dangerous, dangerous instrument. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's and how I became a drummer because I'm a, I'm a disgruntled guitar player, and so I started playing drums. <laughs> that's how, I couldn't do it. My hands, it just didn't, it wouldn't, wouldn't work for me. Um, you would mention you'd mention trust among bandmates. How do you how do you suggest that? people in bands develop that trust among each other? Well, it's got to be part of your personality, you know. Um, we've all got egos, as we wouldn't be doing, wouldn't be, wouldn't be playing in bands or, you know, wanting to pursue careers in entertainment. Um, I think you have to have some kind of uh, respect for one another. And, and, it, and if you like somebody and they suggest, can we, tr- can we try and play a little bit quieter, you know, you, I think you have to kind of say, yeah, I want, I want to do that for him. I want to do that for her, you know. Right. Uh, and, and the trust comes with it, you know. Yeah, I, I, I trust you. I, I mean, I, you speak a lot of sense in other things as well. It's not just all kind of music. I mean, one of the things that I found kind of disconcerting was I went to see John after I left the band, uh, John Ilsley, and in his house down in – near Brighton and or Lewis. And uh, 
it had been about two or three months. And I suddenly realised when we got there with Linda that Linda was pleased to see his wife. Uh, and I was there with John. And once we'd taken away the band, we didn't have anything to talk about. I wasn't interested in what they were doing. I was just more interested in what, what he was doing, you know. I didn't want right. I didn't I hadn't driven a hundred miles to see him to talk about Dar Straits. I'd left Dar Straits. Right. And I, you know, and I'm thinking, you're having a break from Dar Straits, so we'll, we'll talk about but we didn't have anything in common. You know? Really? So, so he just wanted to talk about what they'd been doing. And I go, okay, yeah, yeah, no. And I really wasn't <laughs> interested. You know, I mean, maybe it was rude why, me. why did you go down there? Did you think that you guys were maybe had more in common? Well, Linda wanted to see, Linda was really keen to see um, his wife, his, John's wife, you know, because they were really friends. I mean, the girls all got on really well. Right, right. So that's why we went. And, and, uh, so, but it was, a, you know, just a, not so much of a shock, it's just a, a realization. Oh, well, you know, there you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, I, you know, so. I, I read an article the other day. Um, are you are you familiar with the the show Seinfeld? Do you know that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So it, uh, yeah, it was a you know a, arguably one of the most successful shows here uh, in the states. And I was reading an article about it where they did nine seasons and they were best friends on the show. And but they didn't they didn't hang out outside of the show. They were like work friends, but they didn't they didn't have a lot in common. They didn't do things outside of outside of the uh well, that, outside that, of the show yeah yeah that makes sense really because it's quite intense so right but you know you could still have pursuits that you like i mean i when i was when i was in the band with clark we used to go and he was the first guy that was kind of what i call active you know we'd, we'd sort of go swimming together mm -hmm. you know and uh maybe go in central park and throw a frisbee at each other you know just right. something or you know find a space in a in a hall to after the sound check to throw frisbees and goof about a bit, and it was just great to have somebody like that, you know, around that was kind of more of a soulmate who did stuff that you know you enjoyed as well, like physical stuff. Mm -hmm. you know. so, I, so, do you think that do you think that you have to be on some level? Like, do you think that you have to have things in common with the people that you play with, or do you think that you have to be friends? Not so, no. But what you do have to have is is confidence in your own personality. You know, I mean, you can find yourself in situations where um, there's always a disparity in in the abilities of the the members of the band. You know, mm -hmm. and you you always know when somebody's kind of defensive because. Um, you might suggest a part to somebody and you think they're not playing what I'm asking them to play. It's just kind of, and, and, and behind the whole, the root of the problem is they're not receptive to your ideas because to embrace your idea, so far as they're concerned, it means it, they're playing the, the, the instrument. So if somebody else is suggesting a part for you means you are not really coming up with the goods so it's an admission of your own inadequacy when i always i always used to think not always but for the majority uh, particularly after i played with dylan you know that i thought yeah i mean and, and after i played with dylan i did a session with somebody and i thought you know i'm not suited to this at all you know um look i think you should get somebody else to play this session because it, we're, we're not gelling 
And I didn't feel that was an admission of my inability. It was just sometimes you're not compatible. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think, I think that, that, that a lot of people would push that, right? People would put, even if they're not compatible, you would try to say, no, I want this, I want this session because I want the money or I want the, I want the credits. Yeah, or there's that element, but, the, but that what the element I'm talking about is being able to say that without, without even the remotest kind of thought process that thinks, well, if I say that, it means I'm not good enough. And it's not about that sometimes. It's about having, you know, being the right, the right guy for the right job. Like you can get wonderful kind of components in a hi-fi system, but they're not, they're not compatible. It doesn't right. mean to say that, that those, those parts aren't any good. It just means some things, you know, fit together. Some yeah. stuff doesn't. But, you know, inevitably, you know, you have to be at that stage of your own personal development where you can, you can approach it without it being a, a, a kind of admission of inadequacy or lack of ability or something. it's mm-hmm. just a just a really super sensitive thing to do i mean and i've heard it from other people like jeff picari used to do it or, or people like that he said you don't need me for this you need so and so and so and so i'll right. phone him up and get him down it it's not you know it's it's you have to realize that you know some people are you know some people are not born to work together. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, I, they get really good bass players, really good drummers, but if they don't somehow, you know, if they don't gel, mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't mean to say that they're both, they're not any good. It's just sometimes it, it's almost like the, the glove. You know, I always remember the, the OJ Simpson trial, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that stark, stark moment when he's doing this with the glove. And I think, <laughs> oh, that is really gruesome. But for an analogy, it's perfect for kind of the bass and drums, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful glove. That's a beautiful hand. But look, they just don't, they don't match. Right. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. So that's what I feel about those, those aspects of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you were mentioning I mean, about wanna... uh, as a sign of, as a sign of, uh, you know, inadequacy. And I agree with you. It's the complete opposite of that. I think it's actually a sign of maturity. And I think it's a sign of, yes, of we're not uh, always, of, you know, respect for the music and, and the people who are creating the music to say, look, I'm not the right person for this job uh, or this isn't working. Like get the right, get the right person in here. I think that's, I think that takes a lot more courage to, to do that than to stay and, and try to try to tough it out. You have to be sure of yourself to, to do that, you know, mm-hmm. or you, you just do it and kind of, fall apart, right. start crying or something. You know? yeah. I mean, I remember with the Dylan thing, it was just when I was invited to do that, um, of course I wanted to do it, but there was, there was a little part of me that said, don't do it because if, 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 if it doesn't work out, you're ruined, you know, because you, you, you always wanted to, you know, aspire to those sort of things. And all it is, it's just it's the psychology that goes with it, you know. Mm-hmm. You probably don't have, I mean, we – Soccer's the big game over here, you know, and, and uh, you can imagine the guy is, you know, he's, he's already playing professional um, sport at a, you know, at a high level and he, he, he maybe not the top tier, but he's in the second tier. And then he, he goes to training one day and the, his manager says, oh, you're not trained today. You have to go and play for the Boston Red Sox because they want to they kind of sign you, you know. Right. And you right. think, wow, that's everything I wanted. But when you go there, 
you are nervous because, mm-hmm. and you, you seem to forget, all you've got to do is do what you've always done because that's how they notice you. But for you, it's become such a hurdle to, to jump over that, you know, you, you, I mean, the fact that the first day with Dylan, um, we didn't get anything in the can because it's just, I don't know, really. I don't know what's, I'm not quite sure what's happening, but you, you know, you have the headphones on and you go, that's Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> and you sort of listen to the voice so much, you're allowing the voice to, to determine what you do. And, uh, right. you know, the thing starts to run away. It's, it's mm-hmm. like a sled going downhill without any, any brakes, you know. Was that sort of was was Dylan the was that sort of the promised land for you? I mean, that was like that was the holy grail. Well, yeah, because that's that's what I was offered. You know, I mean, if it had been James Taylor, I would have loved to have done that, or you know, Jackson Brown. It was just happened to be Bob Dylan, and and I had a lot of his albums. In my only real kind of misgiving was that it, it was a was a religious album. You know, not that it really mattered in the end, right? best-selling albums for a while mm-hmm. and it didn't really bother me at the time but i'd have rather have made blood on the tracks or desire <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know but you know but there's there's a good spread on that and and to, to really what i really enjoyed about that was the band you know mm-hmm. it was mark it was tim drummond god bless him he's gone and uh, barry becky he's gone too and and they're just such consummate players you know it just it just it's like turning a tap on it just just flows out right and you can't help but you can, all you can do is mess it up or mm-hmm. just be there and you know get involved and it, it was for me it was a kind of crossing of the rubicon you know yeah it's just it it, it it kind of made me feel yeah i belong mm-hmm. yeah so i don't have to worry about that anymore i don't have to prove to people what I can do. I should do what's required. You didn't feel that way with Dire Straits though? No, not really. Um, it was it was a strange kind of setup because I'd been, um, there were people that um, I encountered, so, oh, we're so pleased that, you know, you made it, Pit, you know, because we, we, we thought there was an American band and then we got the album and we saw, I know that guy, it's you. And it was, <laughs> it was me, you know. And, and for Mark and particularly David and John, the first band they ever played in, and they had no, they had very little appreciation of how, you know, how fortunate they were, you know, mm-hmm. and it kind of kind of marred a lot of certain aspects of the process of being, you know, going on this kind of roller coaster. You know, David was extremely nervous a lot of the time, you know, oh, because really? he used, yeah, it just sucked up into this vortex of bigger and bigger venues and not a lot of experience to fall back on. And uh, there were times in the early days when, uh, you know, we were just still a four piece doing a tour of America and the small clubs about probably somewhere like, you know, like places like the bottom line and Mm -hmm. Boston's very similar, really funky little places, probably about 500 people do two, two shows or something. I don't know, maybe more 750. I'm not quite sure. But um, there were times that Mark was preoccupied. He, that I could see the back of him, right? Yeah, the back, the back of his, his back, back of his hair. He's playing the guitar, singing the songs, introducing the songs, playing the solos. So there's John and David on the flanks, and and, and there were times when John would say, 
it's too slow to me looking at on the, on the pedals on and David would come and say it's too fast <laughs> it's the same song you know and I'm, and I'm, going, I'm just going get get lost guys it's going like this now <laughs> and then Mark would Mark would sense this kind of turbulence if you like right you know and, and he would turn around the solo and just you know shout at me what the going on because <laughs> that was the only opportunity he had to kind of you know Put his put his ten pen thing or whatever it was. Right. I think God, why is this? Come on, we should be enjoying this. You know, it's just it's really good, and it and it has to be kind of not flexible, but um, a kind of spontaneous thing. You know, you don't yeah. always feel the same every night. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the Motown stuff. There's so many great Motown records, and you think you see them live, and and everything's played fast. In fact, I just saw this. Um, on YouTube, this uh, Monterey Pop Festival, you know, in the 1967, uh-huh. there was a somebody made a, a kind of uh, a rep- uh, you know a, a look back of it, 40 years, 40 years after the event, and uh, they were kind of was a commentary about it, and they cherry picked acts and things, and they were talking about Otis Redding, and then he just they basically put him on last on a Saturday night or something, and people thought the show was over. And they were and people were leaving in droves, and he just turned around to his band and said, "We'll do shake double time." Huh. So instead of being down, ba 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 da ba da ba, yeah, ba 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 da, they were going two, three, four, ba 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 da ba da da ba da da. And there's recordings of it at that speed. The crowd came back in. Really? You know, yeah, and he just blew the place apart. But you know, you have to have that kind of. I don't know. It's it's not flexibility, really. It's it's more to do with um, responding to situations, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it comes back to that whole thing. Well, we haven't arranged it like that, you know. Well, right. no. Right. Come on, you should know the stuff backwards by now. Yeah, it's just it, you know. It reminds me of some of the James Brown stuff that you hear. Oh, I know. Like, a great story about James so Brown. fast, you know, that you're listening yeah. to. It, it's like how how are these guys even playing it that fast? Yeah. And and then the next night it's you know it's it's 10 15 clicks slower. Yeah. What were you saying you have a story about James Brown? Well, um before he had this um resurrection with the uh, Living in America. Mm-hmm. Remember that the hit Living yeah. in America. He must be on yeah. some films. Uh, uh I, I want to apologize to everyone who just had to experience me singing. Sorry about that. No, no, no. Don't worry about that. Don't be shy. Um, so anyway, we, I was in New York. We were recording and something, and I saw that they were they were doing guitars or something, and I saw, oh, James Brown's playing down near the village in New York. I'm going to go and see him. So I went to this club. It's about a, a little bar, maybe about 500 people. So when I got there, it was just absolutely ram-packed with people, but it was just um, all sorts of walks of life. You know, there were pinstripe suits from Wall Street. There were punks going. There were people like me just wanting to see the band. There were girls dancing and, you know, and the whole, the bar was like a Western. You would struggle to the bar and shout <laughs> at the bartender, give me a beer, and it would, shh, would slide along and you'd grab it. It was everything. And the stage was very tiny. Now, listen, I'd heard all these stories about, not only James Brown, but Buddy Rich as well, being quite kind of uh, strict taskmasters, you know, mm-hmm. 
So if you can imagine when you play, uh, like you've got a little seven or eight piece band and you play, and, and of course, when James Brown plays, you know, they, they, they come on. It's like starting an engine of a car. Yeah. It, 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 the, the engine never conks out. It just, and it, so the end of a song, there's hardly, you know, a moment. It's just like changing gear. Mm-hmm. So when they do it, it's a man's world. You know, you've got a seven-piece band, eight-piece band. This is a man's world. <clears throat> and they all have to be on that kind of, you know, knife edge. And, and I think, who is it? Lord Buckley used to say, I'm not on the knife. I'm on the hone of the scone. <laughs> you know, you're right on that, that edge. But if one of you is, this is a man's world, that's $10 fine. Yeah. That's, that's- there was a guy that used to stand on the, on the side of the stage with a clipboard. I didn't know that, but I knew there was this kind of uh, kind of draconian kind of regime going on, you know, and Buddy Rich does it as well, used to do it as well. Anyway, so I, remember, I've, I've kind of got all that in my head, and they come out and start playing, and they never stop, and it's just, I was just, everybody was blown away by this, this band. It's like, a, it's like a Buick or something, it just, just like a, no, no, was it a Dodge? Is it a Dodge? What's the one I love? Charger. Oh, the, the Charger. Charger. <laughs> it's just like that to me, you know, and everything's just going on, and it's just fantastic. Gig. And the atmosphere was fantastic with this cross So there I am. It comes to the end of the gig, and I'm, 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 I'm in that straight, so, band. So I'm hanging around outside the stage door, you know, and uh, kind of, a bit kind of fired up. And I see this guy come out. Probably somebody else. Don't you? I don't know who they were. But I said, "You're the drummer, aren't you?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "I, I, I went in my wallet and I got about two hundred dollars out. Just gave it to him." He says, "That's for any fines that you get in the future. You shouldn't. You shouldn't have to pay that." I'm, I'm a drummer too. I'm doing really well. Probably earning a few more bucks than you. So there you are. And I wish the I, I, the guy must remember it, but I don't know. It was. He wasn't quite stubborn. And then I was so kind of embarrassed about my forthrightness and, and you know, little white honky boy, uh, you know, and um, that I just said <laughs> goodnight and walked out, walked back to the hotel. But I'd just love to know if, if somebody out there would, ah, I remember that, you know, because it was in New York. Yeah. And, uh, Who could, I mean, the, it was like, around about 1980, maybe 81. We could probably and, find def- out who who was playing drums with them in 80 and 81. Yeah, but it was definitely before living in America. Hmm. Because it was like, you know, was, they were a hard-working band, and all of a sudden living in America, and it was almost like a cabaret band again because the fees went, went up. Right. Was, it a, I, and I, was it a tour, or was it just like a one-off? Well, I would uh, think he's just, just an endless tour, isn't it, with people like that? You know, it's... it's, yeah. it's it's just a gig here and a gig there, you know. I mean, it's just a gig, gig anywhere. Well, I suppose if you, I don't know where James Brown comes from or where he was living, but once you've got an eight-piece band and an entourage, it's better to be working than uh, than uh, have to find a hotel for eight people yeah. with no with no fee at the end of the night. Uh, in fact, one of the things I did with um, after post Dire Straits. I play with a guy called Dennis LeCorrier, who is the by who is the singer in Doctor Hook, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, he's, he was big in in uh, I don't know about I think America, Australia, and the UK. I don't and know much. Of, I don't know much about him, but I know the I know the name. 
Why are there big hits when you're in love with a beautiful woman, Sylvia's mother, a um, load of other stuff and stuff. Anyway, it, he was over in the UK and, and I did a, two or three tours with him. Uh, but one night, because he's an American and he had an American guitar player, we, were, we had these two gigs with a day off and, the guy, and the, one of the agents said, look, um, I've got you a gig in Birmingham. Half, it's a halfway up the, up the motorway to the next gig. So it's not, the fee's not great, but they're going to give you a hotel. So let's do that. And, and we'll, we'll give a couple of the guys in the crew a night off. It's only a small venue. We don't need all gear. And, and the only thing I ask, Pete, Pete, will you set the drums up and take them down and, and the roadie will put them in the van? I say, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, it's fine. We're playing this horrible like social club. It's like a big bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very smoky because the smoking band hadn't, wasn't there. And uh, we did the gig. It's all right. Okay. And my clothes stank of tobacco smoke and stuff. But there I was packing this kit away. And out of the corner of my eye, down the room, I could see this guy like approaching, like, oh, it's a drunk. And he's, <laughs> trying, he's trying to engage me, and I'm sort of there trying to think, ignore him and get the symbols. Done. But he's, you know, he's having none of it. He's coming over chat. And in the end, I just couldn't ignore him anymore. And he's, he, he's got my attention. He, 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 You'd been straight. So that's right. Yes, yes. Yeah. And this, is, this is the funny bit. It's a payoff. He says, You were good then. What did he say? I don't know. He, sa- he said, You were good then. But the thing was, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't determine the inflection on then. Did he say, You were good then? Meaning, because you're playing in this pokey old hole now, your history. <laughs> or, or it, was he saying, You were good then? You're still good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just so I think, funny. It's, I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. <laughs> yeah, you hope so, don't you? But the funny thing was, I just didn't care, which goes <laughs> back into that, that, that Bob Dylan thing where, you know, maybe prior to doing the Dylan thing and this kind of, you know, coming of age or whatever you want to call it, you know, maybe – Prior to that, I would have been really upset or offended or angry or something. I just thought it was really funny. Yeah. That, 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 you know, that, and especially the language thing. You were good then. Or was it <laughs> you were good then? You know, so, and I don't know. And, and, of course, it doesn't matter because he wouldn't remember any of it. Right. Because he was so drunk, you know. Maybe Some we can find out to... who that guy was and who the drummer was. For no, uh, no, I want to find <laughs> out who the drummer is with the James Brown. I'm not interested in that guy. <laughs> it's it's he, amazing he won't to even me. Remember, he won't even remember he had the conversation. That's James true. Drummer might. <laughs> That's true. It's always amazing to me sweet. that it's just really sweet just to say, right? No. Yeah. It's really, really, really nice to, to know who it was. And if he if he does, you know, think, wow. <laughs> or it's just it's just as awkward for him, you know. Yeah. I wanna I wanna try to I wanna try to figure out who that was. Um it's interesting that we that no matter what level of the game we're playing, we still have this sort of imposter syndrome or we have these these doubts about our abilities. I mean, you were in dire straits before that, before you were playing with Dylan, but yet you're still thinking, you know, okay, maybe am I, do I play as well as I used to or, or, or am, I, am I even worthy to be in the room in here with, with Bob Dylan? How, 
how have you handled that throughout the years? Because we all deal with that. We all deal with sort of our own abilities and and worrying and thinking well, I've that. More, I've become more gracious about um, self-assessment, if you like. You know, I used, mm-hmm. to be, I used to allow it to really determine my moods. And now I just feel that if I practice, that's all I can do in the pursuit of trying to be not better, but as being to, to being as good as I can be, mm-hmm. and, and that, that's good enough for me. But if if I don't practice, I'm not really sure how I can be as good as I want to be. It's just it's just uh, I mean I'm living in the Liverpool area at the moment, you know, for about the last ten years near Liverpool, and there's a good music scene here in, in terms of live music because I think live music is under threat all the yeah. time, you know last 20, 30 years, especially with um, pre-programmed music now, it's just it's just a nightmare, really, you know. Yeah. Uh, I can talk about it forever, and it's not about my own self selfish interest. It's more to do with the whole thing about learning to play an instrument, irrespective of whatever level you want to be at. It's just such a wonderful thing, just a, so, just a social thing alone. It's mm-hmm. just marvellous to get people to sing, you know and to, to, to lose themselves in it. But um, so far as the, um, my ability goes, you know, uh, one of the things I did post to Dire, dire Straits was I, I taught in a school for a couple of years, one-on-one drum tuition. Mm-hmm. And it taught me a lot. It, ta- it taught me a lot about myself and uh, probably more about myself than it did about teaching the kids because um, – so that was kind of a good grounding for me as well. But um, as, 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 as regards the, you know, where do you, where do you, where do you take this whole thing? Uh, when I was teaching kids, uh, and I, I, I do teach as well. No, I can't teach at the moment because of this lockdown thing. But I, I, I've selected people to, to teach. I basically used to give people a free half an hour less, lesson. And we just, it's like a sparring match. We, right. we determine whether he's, he or she has got anything that's worth feeding. Right. And, and, and if they're any good, and, and, and if they're good, it, it, it tends to go more than half an hour. And then you sort of invite them to, if you want, you know, I could teach you and, and uh, go from there, but I'll charge you now. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, I, I don't, what I say, I, I want you to be, I, I want to help you to be as good as you can be. You know, I'm not prepared to teach you how to play like me. I want right. you to play like you. And I would teach you uh, techniques about how to, um, that, that have served me well, about how to improve um, aspects of your, your approach to playing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, usually the, the, one hand is predominantly much better than the other, and I have I've got, I've got hold of some. I've somehow, by hook or by crook, I've 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 discovered ways of improving the weaker hand that actually work, and they're not that difficult to to do. It's just almost an exercise with your brain and the the kind of coordination element. And one of the things that really struck me was when I was teaching, so it became much more crystallized in my thoughts, was 
when I first started to play in bands, I was about probably 15 or 16, and uh, there was a, we used to play in, in pubs and stuff, clubs, alcohol, places that served alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was, at the time, a song called Wipeout by the Safaris. You know, because there was, a, when I first started, there was, there was a, there was an element of uh, instrumental music, which has almost disappeared now, mm-hmm. that was, could, could be in the top 20. Like you, you have a group called The Ventures in America and uh, this group called The Safaris. We had a group called The Shadows. And uh, there were others as well, but they, we do have hits from instrumental music. And this Safari thing was a, a, a dry, kind of drum feature, a bit like Sandy Nelson, Let There Be Drums. And so... Um, so you were featured, even as a young lad. And this girl came, woman came over to me, and I was painfully shy. She said, oh, I've always wanted to play the drums. You play them so well. She said, could you tell me how, how you do it? Do you sort of have, do you have numbers on the drums? And, 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 and you say two beats on number one and three beats on number two. And then you go back to number one, and then you do two beats on number four. And I, I just didn't know what to say. But... Right. It's always lived with me, this kind of, this query. And what it is, they all seem to think that um, the whole mystery of drums is unfathomable because your right hand does something, your left hand does something, then your feet do something else. And their concept is that they're all doing things that aren't connected. And, of course, they are connected. Yeah. And what it comes down to is I started to teach kids when they first began, I said, right, do you want to play the drums? Okay. Uh, give them the sticks. Wouldn't fuss too much about how they hold them because you just get bogged down in that. They want to hit stop. So, right, now just play, just play one beat with both hands at the same time. And they, they can't do it. They, it. It sounds like this. No, that's two beats. I want, yeah. I want one beat. Yeah. No, that's, that's two beats. <laughs> so all of a sudden you, you're dealing with this dilemma where not only are they not doing that, they, they're accepting that that is okay. So they're basically playing a, a flam. I said, mm-hmm. well, remember that, but I want you to play that. And it, it all stems a lot from that. And then Wexler, great Jerry Wexler, who would work with twice, um, what a character he was, you know, um, Great, you know, producer and guy at Warner Brothers. He he said, "Pick always remember, give me a good one. <laughs> Everything follows from one." Yeah, and that is sometimes a lot of people say, "Where's one?" And they play <laughs> odd time signatures. You know, where's one? <laughs> so I don't know. He's gone, but it's it's you know, I must put it all down in a book sometime because uh, I, yeah. I've got a thing about, you know, um, teaching now. I really want to put back, but this this whole COVID thing has messed everything up, you know, yeah. big time. I yeah, find I it difficult to, to teach certain people because um, if they're loud, it, it, it kind of, I just end up getting a headache, you know. And you yeah. have to accept that some people on their, on their road to, to kind of being even – accomplished it starts off being rather clumsy and you mm-hmm. have to negotiate that period and you know 
electronic drums i can't abide electronic drums at all you know mm-hmm. they are such a problem in terms of not technique technique to me is you know it, it, it's a whole area which i i'm loath to dis- to discuss because i think it's misnomer i think it's touch yeah a much more apposite word to use and electronic drums do not teach you anything about touch whatsoever hey are you tired of coated drum heads chipping and flaking after only a few hours of play tired of premature denning and breakage well welcome to the next generation of coated drum heads evan's new uv coating technology they're made with proprietary inks and a new uv light curing process so these heads are able to withstand strikes brush strokes and rim shots better than anything on earth that means you get to play heads that sound and look fresh for longer and you can spend less time tuning and modifying and changing heads. They're available in one-ply and two-ply, as well as Evans' proprietary hydraulic and EMAD systems. Check them out by going to evansdrumheads.com. Analog sound for a digital world is finally here. Sonar has transformed the original sonar sound look and feel of the 50s, 60s, and 70s drums into a contemporary concept called the Sonar Vintage Series. Complete with an updated teardrop lug design, round bearing edges for warm, deep, low-end tone, a reissue of the classic iron-shaped bass drum bracket, and exciting finishes, the Sonar Vintage Series is the obvious choice for anyone who has one eye on the past and one eye on the future. For more information, visit sonar.com. You had mentioned um, uh, Levon Helm, and if you look at the like, you look at someone like a Levon Helm, or you look at someone like uh, like an Earl Palmer, or or uh, James Gadson, or any of those guys, they they're not like they don't have all of these crazy chops that they're flying around the kit with and everything. It's all touch. It's all touch and and feel and and yeah. sound and and sonic choices and everything. It's not about who can play the fastest paradiddle. Oh, truly, yeah. I mean, uh, we always would come back to Steve Gadd. You know, mm-hmm. he's just sensational. You know, and uh, it's that grounding. You start off as a, with the military. In the in the military is a good grounding. You know, yeah. for simple five beat strokes and paradiddles and stuff. And uh, but what I like about um, American military is it swings. Whereas European military tends to be a bit um, rigid, right? You know, if you, so uh, I mean, you you know, you. I think we're catching up in terms of how we approach, you know, teaching music these days. But before, um, it was we were just so far behind. You know, we 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 have these. We're very cynical in this country. We say things like. Uh, Them's that can play and them's that can't teach. And I think it's a real cruel thing to say because teaching is a vocational thing as well. Mm -hmm. It's just being able to, you know. um, Hey, there's plenty of amazing players who can't teach for a lick. I know, but in America, you you, you do have this history of people finding time that have been successful to teach. Sure. I I don't know if it's a kind of, 
pragmatic thing, like they never earned enough money with their success or what, but it's like giving back, mm -hmm. you know, like the Joe Morellos and Bernard Purdy's. Um, they all find time to teach, you know. Yeah. And, of course, yeah. all the jazz guys teach, but I think that's because they never made a lot of money. <laughs> Sadly. Sadly, uh, the, the economics for jazz musicians has never been great, you know. But it might be more to do with, you know, just the way the business was was kind of run because the early pop stars didn't make money either. They were ripped right. off by by Svengali managers, you know, who, you know, there's there's lots of anecdotal evidence of people who are successful and they could have a nice car and they could live in a nice house, but they could never have any cash in their pocket. Yeah. You know, and it comes back to that Harold Melvin thing we were talking about, yeah. right? I, and I can't, I'm, I'm going to do some, I'm going to do some digging on that because I want to, I want to learn more about it. I want to watch the, uh, I want to try to find that documentary that you talked about. And I, I don't know if we were recording at the time, but we were talking about Howard Melvin and the blue notes and Harold Melvin went to the record label and they used to be called the blue notes. He said that, okay, we're going to call it Harold Melvin and the blue notes. And he wasn't That's even right. the lead singer and he made all the money from the band. And the record company guy said it, uh, Harold, I mean, are you, you okay this with all the other guys? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me the money. <laughs> Just give me the money. I mean, he may have run the band. He may have, you know, been, you know, more close to the admin or something, but that's not an excuse. Right. To, you know. Good Lord. But, you know, I mean, when we first started, we, to, to, to kind of put another angle on that whole thing about, where you are in your maturity pro in your maturing process. When I first started playing in bands where you would you'd 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 go and see a friend of a friend's band, you know, and uh, you were really concerned about it was almost like gunslinging. You 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 really didn't want them to be that good. You wanted to be the top dog. And then uh. you would see them play and then they would have a break, come off the bandstand and your friend the guy, the guy in your band who was going to see his friend in the other band, you would go to the dressing room and then and, and say, that, "What bass player? What's, what's, what's the bass player doing?" You know, he said, "I don't know. I don't get what your bass player is." Oh, it's his van. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got you. Yeah, uh, I see Sometimes <laughs> needs must. You know, I mean, <laughs> what's the point of being a great guitar player if if you can't get any gigs? But the rhythm guitar player. He's, you know, he's, he's got a phone and he does all the gigs, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you always have to negotiate all that stuff to, yeah. to get on the on the rungs of the ladder, you know. Yeah. You always see the... My the, favourite uh... memories was... Uh, I, it's all pre-Dire pre Straits and pre-Bob Dylan. I played in this band called Spring, which mm -hmm. uh, was um, coincidentally, although I, I, I didn't really rea realise it at the time, I went... I, I tried to. I did the audition. They were from Leicester, like I was. But mm -hmm. funnily enough, I was in London, and they were in Wales at a recording studio, and we kind of met. And I ended up joining the band. And uh, I had some equipment stolen on one of these uh, kind of festival gigs, and we didn't have much money, so I bought the cheapest bass drum I could find in a junk shop. It wasn't part of the kit. And didn't have a case for it. And we used to walk into these venues and you could see the other band going, sniggering and smirking. <laughs> Look at this bunch of, you know, 
you know, would be's. And I used to love it because I said, yeah, you wait till we start playing. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. But it's, you know, it, it, that cuts both ways because it, it, if I'm buying into that, like I say, you wait till we start playing. You've also got that kind of thing where you, you, you go into another band, you think, oh, the other band's not very good. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's always, so you're always going to end in disappointment. Sure. You've got that attitude, you know, like you just want to be, the best because it's not really about that it's about being as good as you can be and doing you know and mm -hmm. being open and receptive to other people so you can learn stuff share stuff um, but like you, know. you said we all have egos too <laughs> so yeah. we all want to be the best but it's how you kind of you know do you do you consider how you allow it to kind of mature and be i don't know much more kind of open really. sure do otherwise you you're not going to get very far really in terms of development because it's not just about you have to have a life outside off, off the stage mm -hmm. you have to do something you know I, that's i that's really important i think that a lot of times we think that it has to be drums all day 24 hours a day seven days a week and i i just i don't believe that i think we need we need some balance like you said you have to have a life outside of outside of drumming if not i think you'll go crazy yeah. yeah, I'm dangerously close to that, though, Nick. That's the problem. <laughs> and I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. I am I mean, too. Stuff like, stuff like, you know, I mean, playing left-handed and stuff and, you know. Right. Do you, con so, do you consider yourself a uh, – uh, not consider yourself, but do you prefer playing live or playing in the studio? I like both, really. Yeah. And I haven't played in the studio for a long, long time. When I was uh, – a lot of the studios in London have closed down mm -hmm. and uh, uh, people are recording online now, sending this stuff down the wire. And that's not real. Well, I don't, I'm not obviously up to speed for stuff like that. Um, it's not really why I wanted to play. Right. I want to play as a, as a kind of so communal thing. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's to me is not. I mean, it's been coming a long time, all that. Uh, we had this thing in England where, as soon as drum machines came along, people would program a drum machine and the bass line and then go out as a four-piece, but there are only two guys in the band. Yeah. To earn more money. And they say it's to earn a living. And there is a certain element of that. But everything is predetermined. You know, you can't really change anything. You know, you've already predetermined what you're going to play, yeah. how long you're playing it for, what's going to happen when it's going to happen, when it's going to stop, when it's going to stop, when you're going to sing. And it, to me, it's, it's, that defeats the whole purpose of live music. The, live music is an interaction. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it, it, there are attendant dangers with that. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So, so the other thing is kind of a fail, like a safety net where, well, if we do this, we know the drums will sound good because it's a machine. Yeah, we know the bass is going to be in two because it's a program. All we got to do is just the two of us, and and so some people accept that. Uh, I'd know, rather it, I'd rather take the risk of falling on my face. Yeah, I'd go out yeah. and, and that's the way I approach playing live. Yeah. You know, yeah. I remember once uh, when I first went to New York, um, I found myself in Central Park, and the first thing I saw was a guy practicing tightrope walking across with a wire stretched across two trees. And I just huh. thought it's so kind of opposite that it, it, it is a bit like that when you play. 
Yeah. You know, you have to find the right balance and you have to keep moving. And it's almost like those, all those kind of physical pursuits, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you play, you play in a band and it's, it's like surfing. You get on a wave, the whole thing just takes care of itself. All right. you've got to do is stay on the board. And it's sometimes, you know, it's just, you need a good touch. You need, you, you need to have spare, what I call spare capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. You have to be not so much focused on what you're doing. You need to do what you're doing with the minimum amount of kind of cerebral energy going into that. Be able to look around to see what other people are doing, have eye contact. I remember I was 14 or something. I went to see in Leicester where I grew up. I went to see Duke Ellington play. Mm-hmm. Um, big, big band, Sam Woodyard was playing the drums. And I think they had one microphone for the lady singer. The rest of the band was just acoustically, probably about 20 pieces, I think. You know, And I remember seeing a guy playing a big jumbo guitar acoustic guitar. The minute I kind of had eye contact with him, his instrument, I could hear the strumming of the guitar, you know, right. And it was just, it was stayed with me, stuff like that, you know, that, that, you know, if you play together, you can stay together a lot longer because mm-hmm. there's a conversation then as opposed yeah. to, you know, that thing that we were talking about just, just a moment ago where everything's predetermined because you record the drums, you record the bass or whatever, the, you know. Yeah. And there was a kind of period in the in the in the late eighties when even you know established acts would think, I want okay, I've made this great record. Um, I've only got seven pieces on tour, but I want the strings, I want the the horns, I want those synthesized pads. So you got like the drummer wearing earpieces to a click because yeah. everything's feeding in. You know. Yep, yep. He's going to have the strings, but they are, you know, they have to come in at the right moment. So you have to play with a click. Mm-hmm. It's back to that whole thing again, you know, where you make a choice about, I want it to sound like the record. Well, just go home and put it on then. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the, the other side of it too, it, it sort of reminds me of, uh, the, there's a book that I read. It's a, it's a Buddhist book called, called No Mud, No Lotus basically saying like without darkness there is no light you know that sort of thing so if you're playing the same show every single night you don't have a good show or a bad show you just have a show that's the same every single time so like i think that i think that you need to have shows where some nights you fall on your face so that the next night you play and it's a great show and you walk off stage and you say wow that was an amazing show and we everyone was firing on all cylinders and the crowd was into it and you did that thing that that made me do this thing and and all that and and that's what makes you know how do you to to me if you if you don't have that and everything is the same every single night it just it's just becomes boring it's just the same every night it's just yes what i learned about that is that um well, that took me a while to get there. Um, basically, a cohesive unit, a band, if you want to call it a band, will play to a mean average, you know, determined by their ability, their kind of relationships, you know, musically. And that doesn't really satisfy, that will be, that will still kind of um, entertain an audience because they've come to see you play 
the repertoire that they have at home. Right. But you will only be satisfied with those peaks. Mm-hmm. But you have to be gracious about the other, you know, when it, when it, I always just think, oh, that was a great show. Shit, it, shit, it, it won't be very good tomorrow. It's so hard to maintain that kind of standard. And it always seems that certain aspects of the performance are out of your control. It's like the acoustics of the room, mm-hmm. the, the crowd, the, the way people are feeling on stage, you know, it's all those kind of elements. And, but you have to be gracious about it, but you have to also remember that you will play to a mean average. It's not like we used to think if, unless it was right up there, it was, it was rubbish, but right. that's not the case at all. It just took me a while to kind of realize that, mm-hmm. you know, and be, have a bit more gracious, be, have a bit more grace and be a bit more kind of diplomatic about how one, you know, spoke about those things. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I know what you mean about the, the, the choreograph thing. Um, there was one show we did in Dire Straits, which was um, basically we had a, a lot of our equipment, our premier equipment, had gone on the – was shipped over to uh, Europe a day early for a big network TV broadcast. And we, we, had to, we had to fulfill this, fulfill this engagement in England uh, – with our second stream equipment, if you like. And mm-hmm. uh, basically, when I got to the sound check, there was only half a drum kit there. Somebody <laughs> had not kind of, you know, looked into it properly. But we we actually ended up with a drum kit for the show, but it wasn't tuned or anything. There wasn't time, and it sounded awful where I was playing it. Obviously, it was doctored out the, out the front with EQ and gates yeah, yeah. and whatever, but basically it was... It's hard work for me to, to play this kit for two hours. It's just, it's like playing cardboard or something, you know. And, mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you smile and everything. <laughs> when it, but we're into this kind of uh, tour now, and it's established what we're doing, and certain number is the last song because there are no more songs after. It's the second encore. If, it, if the show's gone really well, there are two encores, and the, the second encore is the last song. There's nothing else to play. So we get to the end, the final chord, and I – Sort of decide that I'm going to be Keith Moon tonight. I'm going to be Keith Moon, Matthew. You know, and uh, I just stood up instead of doing all the symbol. I just kicked the whole stuff off the <laughs> off the rostrum and stomped off. And thought I went to the dressing room. And thought, oh my god, what have I done? I'm for it now. You know, they're going to they're going to come in a minute. Say, tell me I'm you know prima donna and unprofessional. And they all rushed in. I braced myself. That was great. Can you do that tomorrow night? <laughs> <laughs> So you know, um, you, you never know what's going to happen, really. But um, yeah, not 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 for me, not yeah. for me to that stuff. So so back, what? Back, go on. Well, I was going to ask what what projects that that you have now that you're that you're working on or that you're excited about. Do you have any? I know it's it's weird because of COVID, um, but how how are you keeping busy now? Well, I'm doing this thing called Slim Pickings, mm-hmm. and it's. Uh, it's basically, it's, it, it, it started from a germ of an idea that I thought, when all this stuff is over, people are going to want to party. And I, and I want to go back to the old, the old days, just slightly before the Beatles. The Beatles used to do the repertoire as well, play these old R&B type songs, which were always, it wouldn't necessarily be um, 
they'd be good. They'd, they'd have great atmospheres on the records, and they were, you know, the recording technique in those days was, you know, wasn't so sophisticated. So you get things like ba the bass dropping out, or you know, mistakes and everything. But the essence of all that era was great vocals, great songs, and you know, somehow it just kind of captured a feeling of good time music. You know, that, um, and I wanted to do that, so. Um, I got this band together with uh, an old friend of mine called Marcus Cliff, bass player I've worked with um, over the over the years, and um, haven't worked with him for a while. But I've started working with him again on this project, mm -hmm. and a great Italian guy called Luca Oscagin, and uh, that was the nucleus of the band. And I had found uh, reacquainted myself with this lovely girl singer up here called um, Megan. Thomas, beautiful, beautiful girl. You know, she's just a fantastic voice for. And uh, then uh, we we found a guy called James Bradshaw, and uh, who's, they're much younger than we are, the three of us. And then we've we've, we've got a keyboard player locally. As well, nice. but, but uh, we've had problems rehearsing because uh, two of the guys are up in London. I'm up in the north, so we have had rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the the it's all there. Just needs to the, the it just needs to be put together. And we were going to do as, um, a kind of a, a gig on on Zoom, but um, with this lockdown now, it's it's just becoming too kind of all pervasive. Pervasive this virus, this new kind of strain of it. So exactly. I've, I've not I've not cancelled it. I've postponed it for for, for a few. I don't know for weeks. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it, we're still doing. Um, we're still doing the gig, and uh, I'm just really excited about it because I'm just playing so, so much better now with a new maturity that you know. Yeah. That that uh, comes from, you know, I don't know, just playing, just practicing so much in this kind of lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about it, but. Um, we see what what happens you know yeah i think but all of us are kind of i agree with you that people are going to want to party i think that there's a lot of pent-up energy for for going out to not only hang out with friends and family but go see live music and to celebrate and to sort of i hope so you know, i hope I, people haven't forgotten what live music does but i i kind of characterize it by saying what what what, what i'm trying to do i don't know if it applies to an american kind of imagery but when i first started playing and, and going to to gigs i always feel bit like a um, fish out of water if i'm not playing if i go to a gig i'm not sure what i do you know i yeah. tend to being a, i call it being a civilian observe stuff but you the, the good gigs like the girls always to put their handbags down in a, in a in a circle and dance dance around it and the guys are on the fringes in the shadows as tom petty might say <laughs> either digging the band or trying to pluck up enough courage to ask one of the girls to dance or something <laughs> right, you know right. but it's basically the way it works is if you can get the girls to dance and the guys to to groove on the band or whatever you 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 know it's a good it's a good wicket to bat on as we say i don't know yeah. what the analogy is but in a baseball because you don't the wicket is not really it doesn't doesn't apply because the ball get, doesn't hit the ground. I get the reference though. Okay, that's good. the reference. Yeah. Okay. I'm a big sports guy, so. All right. <laughs> is your your real game baseball or basketball or uh, baseball? I love baseball. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love everything about it. It's an awful long time, doesn't it? It does. Three hours for a game. Yeah. yeah. Well, cricket beats that. It takes five days. <laughs> I was going to say, doesn't cr- cricket can go on for days? And it can still be a draw. Yeah. What do you, so I don't know. I like soccer's long, you too. You guys have lots of problems with that, don't you? How you, can you play for five days? and not, it, it reminds me, I mean, it's, it's a tenuous link. But when I was at Muscle Shoals um, doing the Dylan thing, um, studio Muscle Shoals, uh, I was in the kind of recreational area. They have these like little booths uh, and they're just notional booths. You know, you, it offers you some kind of privacy, but you're actually proxy to any conversation that takes part takes place in the booth behind you. You, know, you drink mm-hmm. coffee, you play snooker, whatever. A couple of the guys there, the janitors, the guys that um, do the trash, repair stuff, right. you know, do carpentry, what we call a care, janitor maybe you call it, caretaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were having a conversation. And I, I, I wasn't listening. It's just that I was just proxy to it because they just they have these voices, these Centuries, these voices that rang out, you know, and they go, Hey, Jud. He says, Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you got, Red? He said, I've been reading in them there newspapers. Yeah, you've been reading the newspaper, Jud? He said, Yeah, Red, what's he says, What's what are you reading the newspaper? What's happening? He said, Well, he said, I've been reading that the there, them there jet airplanes are flying the sky. He said, Yeah, that's where they fly, funnel up, Red. Yes, well, don't be stupid. They fly. Well, what about him? He said, Well, when they fly in the sky. They fly 600 miles an hour. He said, that's right, Jude. How do you think they stay up there? He said, no, he says, I don't have a problem with that. He says, my problem is if they fly at 600 miles an hour, how can they ever be late? <laughs> and I, it's, that's, that comes back to that then thing, you know. Yeah. You were good then. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it, is he being flippant or is – and I didn't, think, I didn't think he was. I thought he was genuinely perplexed. <laughs> really, you know, genuinely perplexed. Uh, uh, good luck with that, Red, because, you know, I'm not going to explain it to you. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you there. <laughs> well, this has been great. I I truly appreciate you coming on to talk, sharing your stories. It was it was a real honor. I've I've been a fan of your you're drumming for years. I grew up listening to you, uh, listening to all the Dire Straits records and everything. So I, I really do appreciate you coming well, on. Thank and, you. and thank you, Linda, for, for reaching out to me and facilitating the whole thing. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for making it so easy, apart from when we tried to do it. That was amazing. You were really lovely. Thank you. There you have it. The one, the only Mr. Pick Withers. And you can get the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 601. And please, if you haven't already, do me a favor and leave a rating or a review that lets people know, hey, you should be checking out this podcast. And also, uh, I hope that you liked the Getting the Gig series. If you haven't listened to it yet, there's a four-part series that I released last week. I released uh, all four episodes uh, during the week. And it talks about how... All the stuff that I did 
to get my band to a touring band and and then to release my own record and and play with the artists that I wanted to play with and all of that. And it used to be a course. Long story short, the site got hacked and all this other stuff. So I decided to just take the course, put it into audio form, and release it as a four part series. So the four part series is called Bigger Better Gigs, and it's all about. Uh, it starts with laying the groundwork, and then start, and then promotion, and then getting the gig, and then leveraging the gigs that you have. Those are the four episodes. So check it out; it's free. It's on the podcast. It's episodes five ninety seven or five ninety six to six hundred are are the four episodes. So check that out. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. <laughs>